Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're starting a new book of the Torah, Sefer Vayikra, and you know, there, there's in among musicians there are things called virtuoso pieces, and these are like classic uh, compositions where you see like uh, a, a musician is able to just sort of like do an amazing thing, and you you, you can you can see the sort of like their greatness, so to speak, by how they how they approach this this piece of music. And I, I feel like there are certain sections in the Torah that are, so to speak, like virtuoso pieces, where they're just sort of like invitations for just people's like uh, holiness and, and kedusha and their, their amazing perspectives on Torah to come out. So, so the virtuoso piece that I'm referring to is the little aleph of, of the word vayikra. You see just there's um, just an entire literature explaining it from just like amazing different angles. Like what is that, what, what, what is the meaning of the little aleph? So, so before we get into sort of like that, I, ju- I just want to tell you, I, I, I haven't learned so many different explanations of it, but the one that I would say stays with me the most of, of all of them is, um, is from the mayor of Enayim, the, the Chernobyl Rebbe, who just says something just very, you know, it's maybe deceptively simple, but very, very, just very pure and, and beautiful. He says, remember the word Vayikra means to call, and it's referring to God's calling to you. And he says, and, and, and we know that the Aleph is, stands for, so to speak, Hashem, because Aleph is the number one, God is one, right? Aleph is composed of three letters, two Yuds and a Vav that adds up to 26, which is, adds up to God's holiest name, Yudke Vavke, right? So there are a lot of reasons why Aleph is, stands for Hashem. So, so, so the Vayikra means to, to call. God is calling to Moshe, but there's a little Aleph there, so to speak. That so, so, so the Chernobyl Rebbe says that when when a person's heart begins to open up in terms of their relationship to God, first they hear God calling to them very softly. That's it. You know, like it, it begins with a twinge. It begins with a with with a tear, right? It begins with just some sort of little opening, and, and it often manifests itself in our lives as, as the little Aleph. So I had a, a little Aleph moment last night, so I want to share it with you. So I'm walking home from Shul last night, and, um, and I get to, you know, near my house, a few blocks from my house, and it's, a, it's kind of a dark street, and there's a bus stop there, and it's empty, the street is empty, and there's a, like a, 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 an older man who looks kind of, kind of, you know, in the homeless kind of realm, sitting in a, in a, in a wheelchair by the, by the bus stop, and it's just him. And he definitely, you know, doesn't look like he's in great shape. And anyway, so I'm walking by, and as, as, I'm, as I'm walking by, I see on the ground there's um, like some wires, like uh, it's like a you know like a, a headset, you know like ear like what ear, headphones, earphones, earbuds. But 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 you know it's um, they're not white like the fancy Apple ones. You know what I mean? They're these are like they're black and you know like you know from Jim's Electronics, whatever it is. It's like not you know they don't they don't scream name brand. They just like there they are on the ground. And, and I just, I, I keep on walking. And, and I get, I don't know, maybe 
20 pieces away. And I start to think, well, maybe those belong to him, right? And then I think, well, I, I mean, you know what, but maybe they don't, and do I really have to return them either way? I mean, you know, let's, also they seemed dirty and they were on the sidewalk and he seemed a little bit off and I, I don't know if I want to get involved with this whole thing. So I'm walking. And then I think, you know, if they are his, that's how he listens to music. And how many joys does this person have in his life? I mean, that's that could be a major, like, loss for him. And then my mind went to the next thought, which is, well, then maybe he's going to have to play whatever his recorder is very loud. And then maybe wherever he's staying, the people are going to get angry at him and he's going to start fighting with them and they're going to kick him out and he's going to be out on the street. And I had this moment where I was just like, you know, Reb Shlomo used to say, a person can be doing everything right and everything wrong at the same time. You know, technically on the outside, you're doing this mitzvah, you're doing that mitzvah, it looks like you're doing everything right. And then inside, what's going on inside? And I even heard a voice, and I, I imagined myself standing before the heavenly court. And they said, what about that time you just walked by those headphones? Like, what was going on with that? Like, you hardened your heart so much, you didn't care to that extent. You just kept on walking. So, at that point, I couldn't take it anymore, you know? <laughs> I turned around, and, you know, I walked whatever it was, half a block, whatever it was, probably less. Bent down, picked up the headphones, which, by the way, were perfectly clean. There's nothing wrong with them. Picked them up. And I went to the guy and I said, are, are these yours? And he goes, yes, those are mine. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, you know, I often think sometimes, you know, the big things are the little things. Or the little things are the big things. However you want to say it. So, so there's a calling. There's a calling. And that calling, you know, we hear a lot of voices in our head. And you have to know, like, like, like when it's the Yetzirah pretending to be God, right? When... The, the sign when it's the Yetzirah pretending to be God is when you hear that voice, but it's not on the level of the little olive, of the soft calling, when you hear it as a, 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 an aggressive scream in your head. When you hear the aggressive scream in your head saying, what are you doing and everything like that, that's usually not Hashem. 
<laughs> right? Because remember, when Hashem asked Avraham Avinu to seemingly, like he never asked Avraham Avinu to sacrifice his son. Let's be clear about that. He asked him to, bless you, to, to, to alterize him, <laughs> meaning to say, to, to put him on the altar. But the nature of the test was God knew that Avraham would misunderstand that, that Avraham would work within the understanding that that's what he was being asked. The, the reason why it's important to, to make this distinction is because otherwise you'll think God changed his mind and God doesn't change his mind. Right? You think that he told him to, and then he said, ah, you know what, on the other hand, don't do it. That wasn't what it was. It was a test. It was just a test. But when God asked Avram to do that, which is probably the hardest thing he's ever asked anyone in history, or will ask any individual in history, he said, Kachna, please take your son. Na means please. Please take your son. In other words, that's a little olive. That's that. That's that soft voice. That's that soft voice. So sometimes a person has a, a conscious conscience attack, and they'll hear a scream. That doesn't mean that they should dismiss it, but you just have to categorize the voices. You have to just know. Okay, that's me being mad at myself. That's not Hashem cracking a whip. So there's a difference. There's a difference. You have to just keep track of your relationships in a, in, in a way that makes sense. Okay, so I want to... Now that we're entering into Vayikra, a lot of people are missing the narratives of Breshis, Genesis, and Shmos, Exodus, right? Because those are very narrative-heavy, and, and the, you know, just the, the, the lines themselves are so gripping and involving. And then we get to Vayikra, and all of a sudden, like, just the whole nature of the presentation of the Torah switches, and it becomes very much like a technical manual. And um, so, so what I want to do is I just want to just create a context for you, because, because basically there's a tremendous amount of narrative going on, especially in the beginning of Vayikra. And it ties into this little Aleph, and, and we should just understand what's being said here, because there's a very great lesson that, um, that Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching us. But you, you'll never know unless you just, you, you learn a little bit more. You'll never know just by reading the line itself. So basically, here's, let me set the scene for you. Here's what's going on in the Torah right now. Um, the Jewish people did this awesome thing. We built this mishkan, this tabernacle, this dwelling place for God, basically. And, um, and, you know, if you want to go like Rashi and say that this was the fixing of the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf, that was amazing. The Zohar says we were going to build a Mishkan anyway, right? So, but whatever, however you're to understand it, the Jewish people did something very amazing in building, in, in building this structure. And Hashem was exceedingly pleased. He, he loved it. He loved it. It says that he rejoiced on the building of the Mishkan like when he had finished creating the world. This was, this was big. This is big. Okay? The Shekhinah descends, the cloud descends upon the Mishkan. It's finished. Now remember, Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who actually physically assembled it. Okay? So he put it together, put it together. Now the cloud descends, and Moshe Rabbeinu is standing 
outside the Mishkan. So the question is, why, is he, why isn't he going in? Why is he standing outside the Mishkan? So, so remember, the small Aleph, and I'm now giving you the classic, the classic understanding of what the small Aleph is. It's about the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay? Um, and, and if you spell Vayikra without the Aleph, it's Vayikar, which means to happen. And that's the language that's used of the relationship between Hashem and Bilam, that, that God just happened onto Bilam. Meaning to say that it wasn't any aspect of the greatness, the personal greatness or spiritual awesomeness of Bilam. It just was like, basically, God needed him, and so he works it through him. So, bless you. So, Moshe Rabbeinu, like, when you add that Aleph, it's like, and, and God called to him, right? It's, it's, it's the opposite of Vayikar. It, 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 it suggests a very intense, personal, loving relationship. And since Moshe Rabbeinu was so humble, he, he just made the Aleph small. That's the, that's, that's the Midrashic understanding of the small Aleph. But the point is, is that here you see the, the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu. But uh, let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. So the rabbis teach something that's a real foundational thing for all of us to know in our own lives. You see, why was Moshe, why, why, why did God call to Moshe? Meaning to say, why didn't Moshe just walk in? And now listen to this. Because Moshe Rabbeinu was like, who says God wants me to go in? You see, now this is a whole, in one line, that's a whole philosophy and guide to life. Which is, and I want to make the distinction between humility and insecurity. Okay, this is, this is important. There's a difference between humility and insecurity. What you're seeing here is the essence of humility not insecurity. Insecurity is like, um, you know, you haven't texted me in five minutes. Do you still love me? <laughs> that's, that's insecurity. Humility is, who says because I had something today that it belongs to me tomorrow? Because the way I'm going through life is is I'm experiencing every single thing that I'm receiving as a gift from Hashem, and I'm not owed anything. I'm not owed anything. So they say that Moshe Rabbeinu reasoned that there was a sort of like a kind of a Torah, almost halachic reasoning to his approach. But, but what I'm trying to tell you is that it went, it went way deeper than that. He reasoned that if at Mount Sinai, which, which, which if anyone touched it at this certain, certain time period b- before the Torah was given, would die, right? They would just get zapped, basically. If I had to be, and, and, and that, the, that, the, that the sanctity of Mount Sinai was just for that brief period in time while the Torah was being given, 
Why? Because you would imagine intuitively that after the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, that that would become basically the location of the base of Migdash. Or that that would be, you know, this perpetual holy spot or shrine of the Jewish people. The amazing thing is, is that is that just the opposite. Because no one should think that the Kedusha of the Torah, the holiness of the Torah, is isolated to one place or in one time. Also keep in mind, this is consistent throughout the giving of the Torah. In other words, the Torah is everywhere because God literally made the world out of the Torah. So therefore, like the, to, to give special prominence to Mount Sinai sort of almost undermines the, the enormity of the Torah itself. Also keep in mind another sort of amazing fact about the giving of the Torah, which is that the dates of all the holidays are given in the, in the Torah itself, except for Shavuos, the, given of, the giving of the Torah. It says, it doesn't say a date on the calendar, it says 50 days after we leave Egypt. In other words, they didn't, God didn't even want to tie it to a calendar date, lest you think that this was... Uh, something that happened in a brief moment of time and is just relevant to one period of time. In fact, we don't even celebrate Shavuos on the day that we got the Torah. According to an opinion in the Gomorrah, we actually got on the seventh day of Nisan, not the sixth day of Nisan. So when we celebrate the receiving of the Torah, we don't even, rec- we don't even celebrate on the day that we got it. In other words, and, and, and there are more examples of this. I'll, g- I'll give you one more example of it. Which is that if I say on an apple, Bray Priya eats, and then I put the apple down and I see a movie, and I come back, I can't eat the apple, <laughs> right? Because that blessing that I made, I made an interruption, a hefsek. Can't eat the apple. There's no blessing on it yet. However, why is it that if I learn, I say the blessing over the Torah, which you have to say before you study Torah, everyone should know this, before you say the, you say the blessing over the Torah in the morning, if I then pick up a Torah book 12 hours later in a completely different place, I don't have to make another blessing again over the Torah. Why doesn't the same rule apply as apply to the apple? You know what the answer is? Is that you've never left the Torah because the whole world's made out of the Torah. <laughs> you think because you didn't have an open book in front of you, you stopped studying Torah? You know, one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's, his name was... Um, he was, he was, uh, they called him Reb Mendel of Vorka. He was, uh, the, the first, the first Vorka Rebbe was the best friend of the Kutzka Rebbe. His son was also a Rebbe, and he's better known as the silent Rebbe. Because he, he was sort of, he famously didn't give public discourses and things like that. And I, I'll, I'll never forget Reb Shlomo sort of like almost pantomiming one of his Fabrengans where he would just, they would sit in silence and he would just look at a chassid at one point and the chassid would just break down crying in tshuva. You know, just, 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 he was known as the silent rebbe. So one time they saw him talking and he was having a conversation with an older woman and, and, and he was just, you know, on the street just seemingly chatting it up. And some, someone came up to him afterwards and said, you know, you're so famous for not talking. Well, I saw you having this whole long conversation with this woman. He said, you should know, she needed that. And therefore, everything that we were talking, even though it seemed like casual conversation, that was all divrei Torah. Right? There were all words of Torah. So we, we never leave the Torah. 
we never leave the Torah. You say, you say, some of us are more conscious of it than others, but there's that reality, and it's a halachic reality, which is, see, remember, you have the people who are serious about learning Torah, they always want to show you where the idea exists in halacha, because that's where the idea comes down, so to speak, from the spiritual realms into the physical universe, is where you can show the idea in what we call halacha lamaisa, practical Jewish law. Right? If you almost think of tzimtzum, that's where the sort of like the light becomes consolidated into something concrete. Right? So where do you see the omnipresence of the Torah in halacha becoming concrete in the fact that we can't, we don't, we can say the bracha on the Torah in the morning and we can go all day without learning and then pick up a book and that, that first blessing still applies all the way at the end of the day. That shows you that the world is made out of Torah, that everything you're doing is Torah. You just have to bring that consciousness to it. And then when you bring that consciousness to it, you'll be able to elevate everything around you as well. Because at that point, what you're doing is you're revealing the oneness of God. See, I remember I heard one time um, uh, Rabbi Manus Freeman said it, and I, I really loved it, which is, just a, an important distinction. A lot of people think that, you know, I pick up a cookie, and the cookie is sort of like neutral territory. And I make a brocha, brocha ta'ashem elokeinu melcholam, berei minei mezonos. Now what I've done is I've elevated the sparks in the cookie, and I've taken this thing which is sort of neutral, and I've made it sacred, right? Or I've, you know, added kedusha to it. So that's what most people think some form. You can use your own words to describe that process, but that's what most people think. He says, no, the reality is, is that God already fills the entire world. The cookie already is holy. <laughs> what you're doing when you're making the blessing is revealing the holiness that's there. See what it is? So when you go through the day and you have a consciousness that you're swimming through the waters of Torah, right? Then what you're doing is you're, you're not making it so. What you're doing is revealing, revealing God's presence, which is already here. So this is awesome. This is what we want to do. This is how we want to live our lives. And this is, this is, this is the period that history is heading toward, when that total clarity is going to be openly apparent to everyone. So, so again, to return back to the point, we've got the idea that Mount Sinai stayed sacred for a brief window in order for us not to just associate the Torah with one spot and understanding that the Torah belongs to the entire world at all times. Okay, good. So Moshe Rabbeinu, the rabbis teach, figured, if I had to be invited to Mount Sinai, which was only sacred for a limited time, how much more so would I have to be invited into the Mishkan, which stays sacred forever? Okay. All well and good, except it's deeper than that. Because there's one more line. And who says Hashem wants me in there anyway? So this idea that because I have something today, who says it belongs to me?
And again, this is a consciousness which is supposed to invite humility, not insecurity. To make a person appreciate everything there, not to live in fear that it will be taken away. You have to get to the, this, the, the holiness of what's being discussed right now, right? Not the, not the, not the psychosis, right? So, so I'll tell you, Rabbi Eger was one of the great Hasidic masters, and this is the first Torah that he said as Rebbe. Okay, so that's great. That like, wouldn't you want to know? I would want to know the first Torah that everyone said as Rebbe. Right? That would be like a great book. Wouldn't that be a great anthology? Like all the Rebbe's first Torahs as Rebbe. That would be an awesome book. Because obviously, the, whatever they're going to tell you, they're going to tell you is coming from the deepest place inside them. Right? Well, always. But all the more so. I'm not smart enough, you know. But there are people who would know how to do that. Um, I never even thought of it until a second ago. So, so Reblebla Eger. So, so here's his first, here's his first, uh, here's his first tarp. So, it says, you know, there was a um, kind of like a whole incident, I'm sure you all know it, between Korach and Moshe Rabbeinu. And Korach is basically trying to um, lead a, a revolution against, against Moshe. By the way, just as an aside, this is a complete aside, but it's from the, f- it, this is one of those things, and there are many, many examples of this, I'm just giving you one, where me personally, I see the truth of the Torah. Because if you have like a couple million, two and a half million people approximately, people leaving Egypt who are just slaves, and now all of a sudden they're in the desert. And, you know, you know, have you ever heard this expression that Jews are just like everyone else except more so? Right? So, so you've got two and a half million Jews who are just like everyone else except more so in the middle of a desert. And all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, we've got a leader, everything's cool. No! Well, that, no, that's not how we are. <laughs> right? You, you have to have, if there is, let's put it this way, if there is not evidence of a revolution going on, right, of the board of directors trying to kick out the rabbi, then that's evidence that something fishy is going on. <laughs> right? So the very fact that Korach, that that whole incident exists, shows you, I mean, just, again, there's a million things that shows you the truth of the Torah, but that's one more thing that shows you the truth of the Torah, that of course there was a revolt. There has to have been a revolt if we're talking about real people, right? So so Korach wanted to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And... um, by the way, the Berditcher Rebbe says an awesome, awesome, awesome Torah, which is, Korach was very, very great, by the way, extremely great. But he just kind of is, just, just almost, he almost got there. If he had just sat on his basut, if he had just sort of like, just kind of just held it together a little bit longer, however the most respectful way to say that is, that a new position was going to be created called the Levi Gadol. And he was going to be the Levi Gadol. But he 
he, he didn't get it because he caused this for me. So, so Hashem settles the controversy. How does he settle who's going to be the, 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 the levy, right? Or rather the Kain Gadol. So he tells, tells everyone, all the leaders, to put their staffs, you know, in the, in the old moed. And, and the one uh, whose staff will, will blossom, you know, or blossoms, will be the leader. So again, this is now, we're now back to Reb Leibla Eger, his first Torah as Rebbe. Okay? So it says, the one whose staff blossoms will be the leader. So, of course, we know the end of this story. Aaron's staff blossoms with these almond blossoms, and so he's the leader. Except Rebbe Leibla Eger points out something very sort of uh, striking about the way the Torah phrases it. It doesn't, it should say, the one whose staff blossoms is the leader. But it doesn't say that. It says, the one whose staff blossoms will be the leader. And from this, and again, you have to get the context to get the full appreciation of this. The fact that he's assuming the mantle of being a Rebbe as he's saying this. He says, anyone who thinks that that it's like, it's just on the level of is, if you're a leader and you think, now I am the leader, if that's your consciousness, that I am the leader right now, and this is mine right now, and this belongs to me, you can't be a leader. That's not the Jewish concept of, of leadership, of Torah leadership. It has to be whoever staff blossoms will be the leader. It's always just ahead of you, because because it doesn't belong to you. <laughs> yeah, you can be filling that role, and you can be have all of the responsibilities and maybe even all the headaches of it, but not because it's mine. Not This is so, again, now it's returned back to Moshe Rabbeinu standing outside the Mishkan. So Hashem called me to split the sea, and Hashem called me to lead the plagues, and Hashem called me to go up on Harsina, but does that mean that Hashem is bringing me into the Mishkan? Maybe not. And so, that's the story. That's the narrative. <laughs> and now it begins. Vayikra el Moshe v'yadaber Hashem elav. Right? Me'o mo'ed limor. Right? He called to Moshe and Hashem spoke to him from the tent of meeting, say. Right? So that's... That's us. That's us. So let's, let's go further into this idea. And further into the idea of the small olive. Another classic medrash trying to explain, explain the small olive is going to bring up a, an interesting question in a moment. Which is... It says, where did, where did Moshe get the glow from his face? Because after he finished writing the Torah, he wiped his brow, and he had a little bit of ink left over because he made the olive small. And from that little ink, that he sort of put it on his face, not knowingly, and, and his face started glowing. Okay, so that's beautiful, but let's kind of get into the logic of it, try to deconstruct that a little bit for a second. 
which is, isn't it ironic, and I'm sure the rabbis were highly aware of the irony that they were conveying here, that this little Aleph, which is supposed to convey humility, becomes the advertisement of his greatness? <laughs> Isn't that like a little bit, there's a little tension there. And I'll tell you something, Rabbi Green, who's just a, you know, you know brilliant Talmudist and logician, pointed this out in a, a seeming contradiction, or, or, or almost humorous, almost a humor, in, in the construction of the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, which says that a person's supposed to, that a person's supposed to run away from honor. And that if you run toward honor, it runs away from you. So he says, according to that, you should run toward honor so that it runs away from you. <laughs> so if God wants you to run away from honor, you should run toward honor. <laughs> so so there's, there's, there's a whole kind of like, kind of like Ferris wheel of like logic, like spinning around in your head. It's like, wow, what's going on? You know, here's a little olive which shows how great Moshe's humility is, and then he puts it on, and all of a sudden he's like, he's glowing. So I was discussing this yesterday, and uh, one of the people there said something so beautiful. He said it's so simple, you didn't even have to think about it. He says, he says you can be great and humble. And I thought, wow, that nailed it. Man, that was just, that was great, that was cool. It just like popped that out. I was like, wow. So, so there is this concept, there is this concept of, um, you know, just, if a person lives on that level of, of just, you, you just, you don't have it coming to you. And then if you do, you kind of appreciate anything you get so much more. And I wish I could tell you how this story goes. It's a famous story. I really don't remember it, so I apologize. But I'm going to tell it to you anyway. <laughs> but it's only like about two-thirds of the story. But, but, but the point is, is, is good. Which is, it's about this wedding. And I think it's a true story. And it's, it's about this wedding. And it's about this guy who's like, was this fancy guy, I guess. And he was like a, kind of a big scholar. And he wasn't sat at the head of the table. So he leaves this wedding because it's like, you know, like chutzpah. You didn't put me at the head of the table and he leaves. And there's this other person who's like, doesn't even expect to be invited to the wedding. And through a series of events which makes the story sort of fun and interesting, he ends up at the head table. So, there's Somehow there's this, this just this off switch that kicks in on people when they when they sense arrogance. When they sense that you know, this belongs to me. One of the stories that I always think about is, when I first started going to Minion, I went to this particular Minion. It was a small Minion, and I'm a Levi, and I was so happy because I kept on getting the Levi Aliyah. And then one day I realized, oh, you know why I keep on getting the Levi Aliyah? I'm the only Levi. And that day, another Levi showed up and he got the Aliyah. <laughs> and then I realized, just because you get something every day doesn't mean that it's any less of a gift. 
So I'm thinking lately, I got to go to Iceland. <laughs> and, and I don't really even want to go to Iceland. So why am I thinking that? Because I'm thinking like right now I'm like at a certain age and thank God I'm walking around, I'm healthy enough. And I don't want to take this for granted, you know? So I've got to do something fast. Go to Iceland. <laughs> like just to kind of, you know, last night, last night we, we found, there's this like, this, my, 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 my daughter had something to celebrate and, and she's the same age they were applying to college so they just went through the whole college thing. So, so they were together and I had promised to take them out to ice cream but it was late and everyone was tired and no one wanted ice cream. But it was sort of like, shouldn't we be going out to ice cream? <laughs> and I was like, and then there's this place which miraculously is kosher in the valley. It's like this small kind of like place which somehow is like won an award for like the best ice cream around, right? And I'll give them a, a free advertisement, yeah, McConnell's. Have you heard of this place? It's like this small batch, super gourmet ice cream. And they've got actually a store in the valley that's kosher. They said it's the only kosher one. <laughs> so we're thinking. I'm thinking, you know. And then my daughter said, oh, we don't have to go. <laughs> it's like, oh, now you know you have to go. <laughs> you know, because it was just so pathetic. <laughs> but the... So we went and we traveled like this whole long way and, and, and it's on this side street and by the way it was packed, it was like shocking, it was like completely packed and it was like this little place in the middle of nowhere and um, what's the point? The point is push yourself, push yourself, P push yourself, you know, like when you don't have energy, do it anyway. And I know, I know because there was a whole little thing which was, you know, just not even worth relating, a whole little silly, dumb incident. You know, someone prank called one of the people in the car and then there was this whole hubbubaloo. Anyway, but for them that was big. That was big and that was all part of this story how they went for ice cream and in this remote place. And I know they're going to remember that. I know they're going to remember that. And it was all because I was just like, oh, that, you know, I just saw that twinge of sadness on my daughter's face. And I was like, oh, that's that right now. This is, it's like, look up, bad dad. Here we go. It's under the bees, B-A. There it is, bad dad. Oh, there I am. You know, you know, so it's like, so, you know, there, but, but, but what I'm trying to say without, just because I'm desperate to communicate here right now, that actually, those are the moments when you make your life, is what I'm trying to say. Walking by the wire on the street, that, that actually, those actually are deceptively the moments of life. That's what I'm trying to communicate. That, that's the small Aleph of Vayikra, of Hashem calling. That, that's, that's, that's what it is to, to try to live life on that frequency. Because then it's, it becomes a different life. 
and not taking anything for granted. Because then, you know what, you, you know, one of the big words today is mindfulness. This is mindfulness. This is what we're talking about. This is mindfulness. Because to not take something for granted, to realize, wow, I don't have it coming to me, therefore this is it. Wow, I'm in it. That, 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 is, that is what it means to be alive. So how do you do it? How do you do it? So this is one of the headquarters of, of doing it right now. And it's all about, as all the Rebbes talk about, and as Rib Shlomo talked about as well, getting the chametz out of your heart. Getting it out of your heart. Searching your heart for those crumbs. Right? I'll tell you, for me, probably, maybe the highlight of all of Pesach, for me, is burning the chametz. Not even searching for the chametz. That's cool also. You know, everyone's got their own version of it, right? But for me, when you're standing in front of that fire and you're putting the bread in the fire and you're literally at that moment destroying evil in the world, which is what that is, that's what's going on right at that moment. You're, you're literally destroying the forces of evil in the world at that moment. That's awesome. That's awesome. And if you can do that when you're surrounded by friends or family or whatever it is, that's awesome. So, you know, I think one of the favorite titles I ever gave for a talk was, Maybe I'm Not in a Crisis. (laughs) Because... You know, one of the ways the Sahara comes to us is to try to keep us constantly off balance. And if it can tell us that we're constantly in this ongoing crisis, when we're kind of not, kind of not, doesn't mean that we don't have issues that we have to deal with or annoying things in our life. But crisis is a pretty big word. And life is... You know, I don't know. You, we can debate the statistics, but it's statistically significantly annoying. <laughs> and one has to just understand that as a baseline. <laughs> Otherwise, they're just going to be like, what? The, the cable guy's late? Of course the cable guy's late. Are you serious? Are you seriously having a meltdown about that? How old are you? You know, like, really, come on. Like, let's just get a little thicker skin. Because otherwise, we're doomed. Do you understand that? You're doomed to be reactive your entire life. Because otherwise, it's like, this is going on, and that's going on, and ah! And then, did you learn? Did you, did you, did you learn any Torah today? How could I learn Torah today? <laughs> right? But that's the goal. That's the goal, to, to, to be convinced that you're in this perpetual crisis. Let's just like calm it down. Just like lower it down a few notches. To like get rid of like a lot of the drama. It's like, let's just do a, like a drama purge, right? I'm not minimizing people's conflicts and I'm not making fun of people's trauma. I am not doing that right now. 
but I'm trying to just like get real for a moment. So getting the chametz out of a person's heart. So this is, so I want to go back to the Mor of Hashemesh. So the Mor of Hashemesh talks about, see the Gomorrah says that, the, that this world was created with the letter He. And I think you all know what a letter He looks like, so it's like that, and then like that. And there's a big opening on the bottom. So the Gomorrah says that there's a big opening on the bottom, basically the, you know, those people who aren't so connected, basically, whatever language it uses, the, the Rishayim, the wicked, whatever it is, that there's plenty of room for them just to drop out. But the letter hey, there's an opening at the top, there's always a way back in. So the mayor of Hashemesh says something unbelievable. He says that when a person does something wrong, they turn the letter He into the letter Ches. Now the letter Ches is, is, has that little, it's the same letter, except that opening to get back in at the top is closed off. That's a Ches. And famously, the words Matzah and Chametz are basically, remember, they're the opposites. Matzah stands for purity, the, the Yetzer Tov. Chametz stands for ego and, and the Yetzahara. Good and evil, they're total opposites, matzah and chametz. They're the same letters. They're the same letters, except for one difference. In chametz, which stands for the bad side, that little space to return, the hay has been turned into a ches. It's been closed off. So he says, he says when a person does something wrong, they turn the letter hay into a ches. But let's, let's take a step back for a moment. Wait a second. The hay never turns into a ches. But this is a very profound psychological insight that when a person does something wrong, the first thing that they think is, there's no going back, I can't fix it. And that's, that's, that's the Yetzirah, that's chametz mamish. That's the Yetzirah mamish. Trying to close off the, 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 the hope of return in a person's brain. Now, he says something amazing also. He says, look at the letter Kuf. Kuf, he says, is actually the letter He, but, but with a long stem on the bottom. And Kuf, he says, is the culmination of the word Sheker, which means falsehood. Oh, wait a second. Well, it's actually the heart of it, right? It's the middle, middle letter. But, but it's, it's uh, sort of like it's the key letter in his, his, in his mind. He says, you know what you have to do? You have to snap off the snap off the bottom of the letter kuf and you turn it back into a letter hey. <laughs> and then take that stick and bang the door open. <laughs> so so that's that's uh, that's us. You hear a voice, you can't you can't fix it, you can't go back. It's a lie. It's a lie. And if you want to get that sensitivity, that, that type of, like, you know, whatever it is, so we just have to clean out our hearts from chametz and let go of the pettiness, right? And we did this yesterday. It was an interesting exercise. I want to do it again. I want everyone to listen. All these arguments you're holding on to, listen very carefully. 
Many of us have been waiting to hear these words. I'm going to say, I'm going to say them for you. You were right and he was wrong. <laughs> you were right and she was wrong. You were 100% right. Okay, now you've heard these words. Now let's let go of it. Let go of it and move on. All right? Okay, so, so I just want to quote um, one of my teachers, Rabbi Yaakov Deo. He said one time by the Seder that, that Seder night, the prison door is open, but it's up to you to walk out. So Hashem should bless us that we should be able to clean out our heart from all the chametz, that we should be able to be in the moment, that we should be able to hear that small olive, that we should be able to walk out of that cell door, and that we should all be together in Yerushalayim or Kodesh, and we should all be able to really reveal the oneness of God and have just this open heart and to get rid of that that, that little clogged space between the, the hay and the ches, right? That, 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 that's like the orla. That's the, that's the covering over our heart, right? Just to, 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 to snap off that little end of the kuf of falsehood and to just, just do a little kind of... What, what do they do when you clear out the leaves from the top of the house? What do they call that? From the drain? From the gutters? The gutter, yeah, just clean it out. Just, just, just make that nice little opening over there to restore it. And that's, that's our ears, that's our eyes, right? That's our heart, that's our minds. Just to make that opening so that we should be able to receive the oneness of God. Yeah. Now for some questions and answers. Is there a correlation between the small olive and Sinai? Seemingly it was Moshe and Sinai, and Sinai was supposedly the smallest mountain. Something has to do with, not just like the letters, but some sort of minimizing yeah, the space. So, so, you know, did you say minimizing space? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, they say that, as, as you're pointing out, that, that Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, was the smallest of the mountains. And, um, you know, I once looked at the word Sinai. It's spelled Samach, which is a circle, Yud, Nun, Yud. And it's, um, I realized that that word, actually it's like a pictogram. It's like a word picture for the whole experience because the Samach, the first letter of Sinai, is a circle. The Jews surrounded the mountain. That's a circle, right? Then there's two Yuds, which is God's name. So God appeared at Parsinai, where we encircled the mountain. And then there's the letter Nun. What did, what did we say earlier? That the Torah was given on the 50th day, after we left, and Nun is 50. <laughs> so the word Sinai itself tells you that the Jews surrounded the mountain where God appeared on the 50th day. Right? Or you can also darshan the letter Nun a different way, which is that um, we reach the 50th level. <laughs> Because there are 50 gates of understanding, and we just kind of just broke through everything at Harsina, right? So, um, but but 
I'm reacting to this idea of taking up a little bit of space. One of the way out, way out things in the Torah is that if you look at the measurements of how big the um, Holy of Holies was, right? And then you look at um, the length of the um, things that held the Ark of the Torah. The, the, the length of the um, staffs which, which, held, which you'd carry the Torah with, which remained in, inside in the Holy of Holies, was the exact um, was the exact size of the room. In other words, in other words, the room itself and the length of the rods holding the Torah was the exact size of the room, which means, well, wait a second, what about the ark itself? And they say that the ark took up no room, so that it was actually beyond time and space. So this is the idea of, like you were saying, minimizing the, the Aleph being smaller. And of course, you know, famously, the Torah begins with the letter Bez of Breshis, but the revelation of the Torah begins with the letter Aleph, the Aleph of, bless you, of Anochi. So in other words, the whole Torah is like on the letter, letter, level on the, of the letter Aleph, which is why it took up no space whatsoever, because it's beyond time and space. It's another example of, of just the infinity of the Torah. One of, I'll just say it again because it's one of my big missions in life is that for people to understand that the Torah is not a, a bound volume or a scroll of five books. That's not what the Torah is. The whole world is literally made out of the Torah. This is, this is, a, this is a, once you get that consciousness, your, your, your life is different. Your life changes. And you're, certainly your understanding and your appreciation of what it means to be a Jew or what it means to have a soul completely transforms.